IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about a new album by the Gaslight Anthem, an old album by the Shins, and some reckonings at major music publications. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He can't believe the Phillies lost twice at home to the Diamondbacks. Ian Cohen, Ian, how are you? Well, uh, you're 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 leading with sports, but I I, I regret <laughs> to announce that Sportscast is now on indefinite hiatus. You know, no, what? Wait, 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 wait. It is why that was a decision made without my knowledge. Why is this? Okay, do you do you want to talk hiatus? about Jordan Love for the next like fifteen minutes too? Or I, I figured this I figured this was mutual. <laughs> well, no, we'll do a quick sports cast okay, here. Fine. Uh, you know, because yeah, the Phillies uh, just bounced from the uh, baseball playoffs in shocking fashion. Because everyone was like, the Phillies have the incredible home field advantage. The Diamondbacks only won 84 games. And I, I only know all this stuff because <laughs> I listen to sports podcasts. I don't actually watch baseball. I've only watched like maybe two innings of baseball all year. But I follow the sport via podcast. Um, so a shocking loss for you. Like, are you a Phillies fan? Do you care about baseball? You know, I, I, I was... I like this Phillies team. They got good vibes until Bryce Harper decided to wear a Patrick Beverly Sixers throwback in the tunnel on the way to Game 7, which is just importing some of the most rancid vibes in major sports. The Sixers are a team, it is like late Sonic Youth type bad vibes going on there. So uh, just a real unforced error going on. And I mean, I got to ask you though, because this came up, a lot, it's come up a lot in the past year where you've made your stance on Philly sports fans very clear. And I'm wondering... Well, not... <laughs> I don't dislike the sports fans. The only team in Philly that I don't like uh, is the Eagles. Okay, that makes and sense. It's, it, and it's because of uh, the 4th and 26 game Fred against X. the Packers. Like, that has a lot to do with it. Uh, so, but in general, I, I'm not anti... Uh, Philly. I just want to make that clear, okay. especially because of the indie rock community in Philly. I, I, I'm not poking the bear here mm-hmm. or anything. It's only because of the Eagles and only because of my Packers fandom. But anyway, continue. Well, what I'm wondering is that you know the the Philly sports teams have had a lot of close calls over the past year. You know, the Eagles losing in the Super Bowl, the Sixers losing in unceremonious, humiliating fashion, and of course the Phillies also. Uh, losing the World Series to the Astros. And I'm wondering, because, you know, as we've talked about, they have such a presence on music writer Twitter. Um, it Does it make Philly fans more obnoxious to come very close to the championship and lose so it galvanizes this victimization stance? Or would we be more annoying if we actually won the championship? That's a good question. There definitely is a persecution complex I see where... People are like, the world is against us, like that kind of thing, which, I mean, to be fair, maybe isn't entirely untrue. I mean, there, I think that there is uh, some national animus toward, toward Philadelphia fans. I mean, the Phillies, again, I've barely watched any baseball this year, but according to my sports podcasts and also the highlights that I see on social media, they seem like a fun team. You know, mm-hmm. like a lot of mashers on that team, a lot of home runs, uh, whereas Arizona... Uh, the way that they win 
is just by milking the bullpen. You know, you just put in like like five relievers every game. Like it seems like that's how they won yeah. game six and seven. Like the kids love around it. <laughs> down Philly, which seems like uh, an effective way to win, but like not very fun. Like the that idea of like a pitcher going nine innings, throwing a complete game, is so uh, anathema to baseball now, and that seems like one of the bad things about baseball right now. Um, I will say that generally speaking. Uh, I like it when big market East Coast teams don't win, uh, especially because you inevitably get the media narrative that like the ratings are going to be terrible, yeah. like for the big championship game, like whenever like Philly doesn't get in or Boston or New York, and of course the people who are talking about the ratings are people who like generally like live in those cities. So I'd like to see that happen, especially since I'm not invested. And the World Series having great ratings. It's not like I'm going to get money if the World Series like tops out at like record-setting numbers. Yeah, I was watching um, the Phillies games on Max. Like I had no idea. Like my <laughs> wife was telling me, it's like, hey, did you know on our HBO app you can watch the World Series? And I've watched college football games on the CW this year, so <laughs> there, I, I just have no idea where anything is happening. Like when I was watching Virginia play at CW on the CW, I was expecting like Gavin DeGraw songs to and like Snow Patrol to come pipe in. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, that's old school CW. Um, as you said at the top, uh, my team stinks. Packers are awful right now, and I am anticipating a special kind of hell for me because the Packers play the Vikings this weekend. I live in Minnesota, uh, so I'm surrounded by Vikings fans. I'm expecting to get clobbered by the Vikings. Uh, I'm expecting the Packers. I guess not me personally. I'm not going <laughs> to get clobbered, but I, I, you know, I'm I'm one of those annoying sports fans that says "we" when he talks about his team. So yeah, I feel it's the royal "we" with me and the Packers. We're going to get murdered by the Vikings. Um, my my one hope is that like the Vikings just beat the 49ers, a very shocking upset. So maybe this Packer game will be like a trap game for them. You know, it's like the the hangover from the big thing, but I don't think so. We look awful. Jordan Love. <laughs> whew, yeah, it's, it's, it's looking it's, rough. It's the worst of all worlds because not only are they like bad, but they're boring too. Yeah, exactly. We're irrelevant. Like we're not even uh, you know, fun to talk about. Like that game last week, uh where God, who did we even play? We played the Broncos, like the oh, worst God. team in the league. And, uh, yeah, guys, it's awful. Well, anyway. Ro- Romeo Dubes has gotten me a couple of garbage touchdowns in fantasy. So, you know, I, I, I got to take what I can get out of this team. All right, enough sports cast. Let's get out of sports cast. <laughs> Let's get into indie cast. Um, you know, I always worry when we talk about music media stuff that's too inside baseball that our listeners don't care about it as much as we do. So, this next topic, I'm very interested in talking about it, but I worry that we're going to lose some listeners here. <laughs> then again, we just did sports cast, so maybe I don't need to be worrying about alienating people. Um, there were two stories this week dealing with music publications, and music publications going through a reckoning of some sort. Uh, one involves Rolling Stone, uh, the other involves Bandcamp. Um, let's talk about Rolling Stone first. I don't know if you saw this, but, uh, Rolling Stone ran, I think three stories this week in reaction to Jan Winner's recent comments in the New York times, where he said, essentially 
that there were no women or like black artists in his recent book because there are no women or black artists who are insightful enough for him to interview. Yeah, let's and let's course, let's be very clear. That is Jan Wenner's position, not ours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's Jan Wenner saying that he, you know, he's essentially saying yeah, they're not articulate enough. They don't have interesting enough thoughts for me to interview. And of course, this caused a big firestorm. Uh, very controversial. Uh, Jan Winner, of course, already not at Rolling Stone, so it's not like he was ousted from there, but this certainly sullied his reputation, and that naturally reflects on Rolling Stone, even though I think if you pay attention to Rolling Stone at this point, you will have noticed that they've changed pretty dramatically since Jan Winner exited a few years ago. Uh, they're If you look at their covers alone, much more diverse than they were before. Uh, much ra- much wider range of artists, much younger artists. Um, you know, a lot of K-pop, a lot of uh, you know, sort of like like Latin rap, all that kind of stuff, all coming to the fore at Rolling Stone. Um, but Rolling Stone, they ran three stories this week that I thought were interesting because it, they were very pointed articles about how. Rolling Stone in the past was very restrictive toward artists of color and female artists. There was a uh, oral history of like female music writers where it seemed like the overriding message of the story was that Jan Winner was not nice to female writers over the uh, over the years like when he was uh, the the top dog there at Rolling Stone. There was another article uh, from the Black Rock Coalition uh, talking about again you know, the lack of black artists on the cover, the lack of coverage of, of black artists over the years. And uh, there was another column essentially saying the same thing. This idea, again, that, like, if you were reading Rolling Stone and you weren't, like, a straight white male, that you weren't really seeing yourself represented in the pages of the magazine. And I, it just struck me because I think Rolling Stone, they had to make a statement about Jan Winner because they want to distance themselves from these comments that he made. But also, I don't recall reading articles in a magazine that were so critical of the publication's own past. <laughs> like, I would have expected, like, an editor's note. Like, the editor saying, you know, we disavow these comments. We are not that publication. We are, you know, we strive to have much uh, more diverse coverage than we've had in the past. But to have three articles... Uh, you know, including like a reported piece about the old publisher. It was very striking to me. Almost like Rolling Stone is severing itself from its own past. You know, I, I, do you recall anything like this? I mean, this was very dramatic to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, when I read The Big Payback, that book about hip-hop, like the the uh, incredible book by Don Chandris about uh, hip-hop. I'm thinking about like oh, the yeah. source um, that that was a publication that had like a lot of internal drama and oftentimes played out in the pages. But I think that, you know, I, I think that was, uh, that cohered with the state of hip hop beef at the time. But this, this, this is very interesting because this, uh, this creates this kind of paradox with a lot of big publications where, um, you have to acknowledge how important the past is in order to, deconstruct it uh we saw that a little bit last a couple few years back when pitchfork ran 
uh, their re-reviews of certain albums. I think like uh, the most well-known one was Interpol's Turn on the Bright Lights. Uh, and, and that was like a very, very, <laughs> I think that, I think they got a lot of traffic, but, um, I, I think that this points out and uh, a lot of people will say, well, wait a minute. These people seem to be so, you know, against the, everything this publication, this name stands for. Well, why would they write for them? And I think it, it's very Oedipal at this level right now. You know, it's like the doors, the end. I mean, I, I know that we shouldn't bring up the doors in relation to Rolling Stone because they're kind of get, getting past that. But um, I think that this isn't a specifically a 2023 Rolling Stone thing so much as uh, a point about how much music writing is particularly driven by spite. I know for me, I mean, I during my formative years, I would read like Pitchfork shit all over my favorite bands like Jimmy Eat World and The Promise Ring. And now here I am like 15, 20 years later. Um, I think there is something... It, it, it's almost political in a way where it's like, I'm going to get in from the in, I'm going to take the machine down from the inside. And I, look, I think that helps uh, when, you know, you're not getting paid very much as a young writer. And we're going to get into that in our second subject. But um, yeah, I do wonder what the path forward is. I mean, I wonder, I don't know if I necessarily care that much, but you look at Rolling Stone now and you're right that cobbling together these various standums of like Swifties and K-pop fans and, uh, you know, Urbano and so forth. Like, I think that's, that's what people want to read. But I do wonder if like the sort of person who would be drawn to reading Rolling Stone as opposed to, I don't know, watching TikToks or YouTube would really care. You know, I mean, look, the, the arc of music journalism is headed towards, you know, the, the great dustbin in the sky, but I think they're doing everything they can, but I do wonder if this is going to be a theme, not just for them, but for other publications where there's just this reckoning for how shit happened before and how we're not that anymore. Yeah, I mean, because I think with Rolling Stone, that again, clearly they had to make a statement about Jan Winner and that idea that he represents now that the only important artists are like straight white guys with guitars. That clearly has to be something that if you're a music publication in 2023 and you're trying to reach young people, you have to get it out there that this isn't what we represent anymore. Uh, however, there is a thing with Rolling Stone where they do have a history that is significant to a certain kind of reader. Yeah. And I wonder like, if you get too far away from that, like, what is your identity? You know, like, what are you? Like... For all of his faults, and there are many, many faults <laughs> with Jan Winner, when he was there, like I knew what Rolling Stone was. You know, I knew what they represented. And if he were still there now, there's a 1,000% chance that Mick Jagger would be on the cover right now. Yeah. Like when there was a new Stones album, you would have Mick Jagger on the cover. There'd be like an in-depth interview with Mick Jagger. Jan Winner probably would have done it. Yeah, I was about to say, and it would have been like a conversation. It wouldn't be an interview. It would be a conversation. And it'd be like, okay, that's what Rolling Stone is. Like, they are the magazine that does the Mick Jagger interview, and they put Mick Jagger on the cover when there's a new Rolling Stones album. Like, I know what that is. Um, and as you attempt to get past the legacy or the bad parts of the legacy of a publication that you're at, how do you do that while at the same time, like, 
maintaining that connective thread that gives your publication status and stature and identity and i mean i think pitchfork obviously as you alluded to i think they're dealing with the same thing where pitchfork has this brand that's very established and you look at it now and there are certainly things happening now that are going against what that brand was starting with the much more favorable coverage of mainstream pop music which was something that we all know pitchfork wouldn't have done 20 years ago and it, that's reflective of how music culture itself has changed. It's a, I think, to some degree necessary change. But it's also like, what are you then if you don't have that oppositional stance to pop music that Pitchfork had in the past? Like, what is the identity? I think that is always the rub here. And it's an evolving question for all of these long-running publications that have managed to stick around. Uh, over the course of decades. And it's just an interesting thing, I think, to observe. Yeah, I do wonder if it's just going to be, it's like, it's, there, the, we're already in the phase of like what comes next for major publications because there's like a 16 or 18 year old kid mad about the direction now and they cannot wait to get their hands on the controls and do the same shit over again. And the number of people doing it just gets less and less and less until we're strictly in a, a TikTok medium. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing, though. I think that's a misnomer. I think there's more people than ever commenting on music. It's just that they're not necessarily paid professional critics. Right. You know, there are a lot, you know, like we're inundated with music uh, commentary now. Like you get it everywhere and you don't necessarily need to get it from a magazine or a website, you know, and, and that, I guess, is the rub if you are a person trying to make a living doing this. Like there are a lot of people out there who just do it for fun and they do it very well. And you, you know, they're not trying to make a living at it. Uh, so, the, so that's, that's always the challenge there. Um, let's talk about Bandcamp. Quick. Yeah, speaking of people uh, trying to make a living out there. Well, okay. So we've talked about Bandcamp before on the show. They're obviously going through uh, a rough time right now. There were uh, a bunch of recent layoffs, uh, there, uh, you know, they, they recently got bought by this uh, very Orwellian sounding company called Song Trader. Uh, no E between the D and the R. Uh, and it seems like they're in a transitional phase. We don't know how that's going to affect consumers or you know users of Bandcamp. If uh, hopefully that uh, platform is still going to be able to uh, survive and thrive in the future, uh, we don't know the future as it holds right now. Uh, Bandcamp was in the, in the news again this week because um, the company's editorial director went on Instagram and did a series of posts. I guess these were old posts. Yeah. I guess they, they recently resurfaced. There was a, a story on a website called 404 media, which I had never heard of until uh, this story. Uh, but uh the editorial director, who uh, presumably he was involved in negotiating with the union there at Bandcamp, uh, he went on uh, Instagram and described the union members as privileged tech workers cosplaying as Amazon warehouse workers, and then uh, continued and said, there's a strong piece to be written, I think is what he meant to say, mm-hmm. in white-collar tech workers who make north of $70,000 a year, appropriating the language of the legitimately oppressed uh, for anyone who wants to write it. And then uh, for those who 
couldn't pick up on the subtleties of that. He just said, fuck Bandcamp United. There's like, uh, I think, seven U's in, in, in fuck there. Um, the same person also went on a tirade on Instagram about Pitchfork, who did a story about Bandcamp. And he uh, referred to Pitchfork as an, as an anti-intellectual joke and I'm your enemy for life. <laughs> and yada 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 um you know in this story it went viral and people were just dunking on this band camp guy all day long to the point where like i started to feel bad for him and maybe i shouldn't because the content of what he was posting is is not great no. you know the, the the sentiments are not great the uh you know just posting this publicly as a manager not great, not professional behavior. Um, I mean, I just feel bad for anyone that ends up in like the social media scrum, you know, like where you're getting dunked on left and right because it it inevitably turns from I'm criticizing the content of what you said to just like really mean spirited comments about like how you look in a photo, right? Uh, you know, because this person <laughs> posted selfies with the um with the messages that he was posting on his Instagram stories. And it was a little strange because it looked like he was acting out the emotion of the statement. Like he'd be making faces, like he was saying it. And it was very odd. Um, but I, I don't know. I started to feel bad for him just because I feel like the pylon got so bad. Um, I have to say, you know, I was thinking about how uh, social media, I feel like was a lot worse 10 years ago in terms of like personal attacks, like where you would have people attacking other people in the media because they didn't like something. Like I know for me personally, like I was writing for Grantland at that time and there were people that would like literally like live tweet my columns and just (laughs) were like, and they would just go through it paragraph by paragraph and they're like, oh, this is awful. This is stupid, blah, blah, blah. And then around 2015, it stopped. And for a moment I was like, oh, maybe people they've come around. Like I've won these people over. Like they don't (laughs) dislike my writing anymore. And the thing I realized is that that's around the time that Slack became a thing. And because of Slack, people realized that, oh, I don't need to go on social media to vent about something I hate. I'll just do it to my bros on the Slack channel. So the shit talking that used to be commonplace, I think, in social media, it migrated to Slack to DMs, to text chains, all that stuff. And it just made me feel like this Bandcamp editorial director, can someone tell him about text chains? Can someone <laughs> tell him about DMs? Like, he, like vent in the DMs. Don't do it publicly. It just is not a good look. Um, I don't know. Am I wrong to feel bad for this guy? I, I guess I can't help it. I know what it's like to be in the social media scrum. It's awful. Even if you deserve it, I feel like the punishment is always disproportionate to the crime. Yeah, and and this guy, I have good, I have warm feelings towards him. Back in 2014, he greenlit a story I did on the modern baseball Wonder Years fireworks citizen tour. Like nobody was greenlighting that, so um, I, I have good feelings from that part of things. But like, 
Gosh, uh, it did remind me. A lot. It, it was a very 2014 affair, as you mentioned. I didn't think of Slack as the connective tissue here, but look, you've been uh, you've been over the barrel. I've been that guy, and it just reminded me that it really has been a long time since there, you know, music since someone on Music Writer Twitter has been the day's main character. Um, because, you know, like you were saying, reviews aren't going to get you there. Uh, an article you post on like The Ringer or whatever is not going to get you there. However, say, call, like sounding like, uh, you know, one of those NFL owners talking about like how Lamar Jackson is spoiled because he's only making $10 million a year or something like that and wants a new contract. Uh, that's not a good thing. And also, yeah, the screenshots. Like if this was just a Twitter rant, this would have gotten nowhere near as much mileage. But this was like a NPR Whole Foods version of those little boozy IG reels where he just like tapes himself in the car saying the most out-of-pocket shit imaginable. It, I think that that this kind of speaks to, and uh, Rolling Stone's kind of the story the same way, about how there's got to be a better way to age in this industry. I'm seeing so many people who are, you know, 45 and older uh, in this, you know, the lifers lose their goddamn minds online. Like it's either brain worms or a type of music writer CTE where we need to donate our brains to science. Uh, yeah. My, my, my yeah, question for you is that, I mean, I know this is not the real point, but when he said making $70,000 a year, I'm like, that still sounds like a lot of money for a music writing gig. I think the point he was making is that if you make that much money, you shouldn't be saying that you are uh not oppressed but like you that you need a union to help you get better benefits well, i think that was the point of what he was trying to say oh, absolutely which, which um it's like anyone has a right to unionize it there is no like oh like well you are doing well enough you don't need to unionize i think that itself is not a great argument i mean but again maybe i'm being too sympathetic to this guy but i feel like We've all been in that situation where, you know, you, you get upset about something and you just need to vent and you vent to your friend in a text chain. And then like a half hour later, you look at what you texted and you're like, ah, I'm kind of off base here. <laughs> I'm, I'm overreacting, but it felt good to get it out. Yeah. You know, I got it out. Now I can see my own words. I can see that I'm wrong. And it's a harmless thing because your bro, your bro's going to support you. It's like, they're going to be like, yeah, fuck those people. You're right. You're absolutely right. But even your friend, when they're saying that, they know that you're probably wrong, but they just need, (laughs) but but they know that you need to say that you're, you just need to hear someone say that you're right. You you feel good. You feel better. You got it out of your system. And then later on, you're like, okay, I was wrong. I'd like to think that this guy, if he could have just vented to a friend, he would have seen later like oh i was off base like i overstated that i didn't really mean that maybe i'm giving him too much credit because these posts were spread out over the course of several months so i did not know (laughs) that part of it (laughs) well well i think i think again like i think the uh like the union uh uh posts were in may but then this pitchfork thing was recent because it was in response to the story so that suggests a a threat of of thought that is consistent over the course of many months. So anyway, I don't want to pile on on that person. Yeah. I'm a, Uh, I'm a, I'm a proud union guy at my real life job and we're gearing up for strikes. And so, yeah, it's really just a matter of like, 
you know, what you're paid relative to your worth. And I think that you're pointing out, I cannot tell you how embarrassed I am when like I DM or text a guy about something. And then I look at the most recent conversation we had. I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck was I on that day? Yeah, but you know, you need to do that. You need to vent. You need to get it out. You need to like, and I think when you talk about the CTE, maybe that's what that is because you don't, get it out you have this poisonous gunk in your brain that hasn't been vented and then over time it breaks down and you just are lost in a haze of insanity brought on by uh, abusive discourse <laughs> over many over many years too many um, scrums that's like literally how you get cte yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly too many online scrums um let's do a quick fantasy update here and we'll make this quick. Uh, Sampha, we were talking about this. We were saying last week, Sampha had to do 87, we were thinking, for you to tie me, I guess. It was 87 to tie me going into the final matchup between Taylor Swift and Marnie Stern, which, again, I'm, I'm totally screwed, <laughs> I think, in that matchup. Sampha, right now on, Met- on Metacritic, 89, uh, which is the highest scorer for you, right? Yeah, that... that it, I mean, I consider Sampha's music to be like if James Blake skipped all the early cool shit and just went into kind of corny R&B, but <laughs> my man's putting in work for me right now, so... Critics love that kind of music. They love man. that, that shit. It, yeah, all, all, yeah, you... Like, slightly indie R&B is like the true north. It has been the true north forever, and so I, this was all part of the strategy. Yeah, so... Uh... Actually, 1989 Taylor's version drops today, so we'll see the reviews of that. I'm expecting that to be north of 90. Mm-hmm. I think you're gonna kill it there. <laughs> and then I have Marnie Stern. That's like early November. Yeah, that's the week. That's the uh, the next week, I believe. Uh, so I'm hoping for mid 80s there, and I'm hoping for some like backlash reviews against Taylor Swift. That's my only shot. I I, I need. The CTE, over 45-year-old music writers to come out for me. Give Marnie Stern, you know, some high grades. Somehow get me into the high 80s. And then I need some backlash think pieces about Taylor Swift. That's <laughs> Good gonna luck drag with that. Her, That's going to drag her. Bef- I mean, that's got to come at some point. Yeah. She's overdue for some backlash think pieces. I don't think it's going to be now, though. I think I'm in big trouble. So, uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um Let's talk about uh, the new Gaslight Anthem record. The, it's out today. It's called History Books. It's the first Gaslight Anthem record in nine years, uh, uh, following up on Get Hurt from 2014. Um, I actually interviewed Brian Fallon, the lead uh, singer and songwriter of, of the Gaslight Anthem. That's That interview is going to go up next week. It was actually like a really fun interview. We actually talked about the entire discography of the Gaslight Anthem. And Brian is a great interview because he's one of those people, he's very candid mm-hmm. about the ups and downs and like the strengths of records and the weaknesses of records. So if you're a fan of the Gaslight Anthem, I think you're going to enjoy that article. I think that column will go up in the middle of next week. Uh, but, uh, you know, listening to this record, it was an example of, and we've seen this before, like we're a band... They go on hiatus and they're gone for like maybe a decade or so. 
and some bands they come back and you can tell like oh i don't know if they really can do what they've done before if you know if they if they still have that kind of ability to evoke the thing you liked about the band and then there's the gaslight anthem who i feel like totally click back into place with making gaslight anthem anthems <laughs> and it was fun it was funny talking to Brian because you know, he confirmed this essentially that like you know he's he's put out a series of uh, solo records that are very much like in a singer songwriter type vein but he has this other gear in his mind where okay I also write gaslight anthem songs and I know what that is and it works and you know there's a bunch of songs on this record where you're just like, yes, this is the Gaslight <laughs> Anthem. They're doing Gaslight Anthem type things. Of course, Bruce Springsteen shows up on the record. I think this is the first time he's actually appeared on a Gaslight Anthem album. Yeah. Uh, Brian actually told me that Bruce volunteered to be on the record because he was so excited about the band getting back together. I just love the idea of Bruce being a Gaslight Anthem fan, even though Gaslight Anthem is like the ultimate like Bruce Springsteen fan group. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it's like this kind of record. You know, we were we were talking about this in our outline. Like there was a Menzingers record that came out earlier this month. That kind of feels in the same vein of as the Gaslight Anthem. Like this is very good. Like autumn music. It's like put on your flannel shirt. You know, like drink like a IPA. Mm-hmm. Hoist it above your head. Like that. Like that's what this kind of rock music is. I think, and it's it, it it's well timed. I think for this time of year. Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Brian Fallon. Um, speaking of like 2014 music writer pylons, like I shit all over Get Hurt. Um, and I think I, you know, I actually like talked to Brian about it. I think we hashed it out a bit. Um, that's been kind of a common theme in my life where I shit all over, uh, you know, a band's music and then I end up interviewing them and it's chill and they have a good attitude about it. But yeah, I, I like how Gaslight Anthem and Menzingers kind of you know, put this stuff together because it is very much a type of guy music, which I think it, if it's not like dead center in our interest, uh, it's very much adjacent, uh, you know, cause it is like Bruce Springsteen and, you know, thinking music ain't like it used to be. And, you know, like if they like Pearl Jam, I imagine spin the black circle is probably their favorite song just because of its message. And, um, I did want to give a shout out to a great podcast I've been listening to called guys it's about types of guys, and uh, this week's episode is about rockabilly guys, which is it's fucking hilarious. Um, they did ska guys the previous week, and I just love the type of guy who likes the Menzingers, who likes the Gaslight Anthem. Yeah, I think there's some with Pup in there as well, where it's just about being an older guy and your back hurts at the show, and you know you're not really sure about what's going on with this streaming music, and you just want to. Crack open the Bukowski at the bar or, you know, when you're pushing the stroller. I, I got to respect the type of guys. And, yeah, it does sound like old Gaslight Anthem. 59 sound, fucking awesome record. I actually saw a license plate frame saying I got the 59 sound playing on my radio the other day, which it was on, like, you know, like a, a, 19, a 2012 Corolla or something like that, which I think was very poignant. So uh, shout to these guys doing their thing. Um, I got to respect it. Yeah. And I think part of getting older is embracing being a type of guy. Yes. You know, I, I think like when you're in your twenties, you're very defensive about being a type of guy. Like you're like, no, I'm not that type of guy. <laughs> I also like this. I'm going to demonstrate that you can't pigeonhole me. 
And then you get older and you're like, you know, I like being a type of guy. I'm comfortable in my own skin. This is the type of guy I am. And by the way, you know, we shouldn't be limiting here in terms of gender. I think women can be a type of guy as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, like there's type of guys with women. And women are also, you know, they can be the type of guy who's what we're talking about here. I think Gaslight Anthem actually has like a big uh, female fan base. Oh, absolutely. I don't I don't think the Bukowski thing applies to Gaslight Anthem. I think with Gaslight Anthem, it's, it is more of like a... Because I don't think there's like a strong... I don't think of them as, as like an intellectual band. True. Necessarily. I think of them as more of like... Kerouac? Got, no. Yeah, maybe Kerouac. Yeah. Hemingway? I like a bear, they're like a... They're more emotional type band. Right. I think that they are more about... Like it's not like the Mountain Goats thing where it's the... Although Mountain Goats, I think, for the people who love them... There's a lot of emotion in those songs, but there is more of like a literary thing going on in, in those songs, whereas I think with Gaslight Anthem, it is about hitting you with these like emotional peaks, and like you feel like you're lifted off the ground, like when those choruses hit. That's like what they're doing. Maybe they're more... Uh, mo- it, I think there might be more movie guys. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Eddie but and I'm the Cruisers or whatever. <laughs> I'm glad that they're back. I loved seeing them on the reunion tour. From talking with Brian, it seems like they are back. This is not some like reunion, like one-time only thing. They are back on track, and it's really cool. This is a cool record. If you're a fan of the band, you're definitely going to get into it. All right, so let's transition here. Like I said at the top, we're talking about a new Gaslight Anthem album, and we're also talking about an old Shins album. The Shins album in particular is Shoots Too Narrow. Uh, that album turns 20 this month. You, Ian, wrote a uh, retrospective piece for Stereo Gum about the album that was very well received. And it's interesting, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week after we were done recording. You said, I have to go write this Shoots Too Narrow piece for Stereo Gum. I think you were going to write it that night, like Thursday night, and it ran Friday. And you asked me if it was my perception that Shoots Too Narrow is looked at as, like, the best Shins record, or is it the first record, Oh, Inverted World? And I said that I that my perception is that I, I think Shoots Too Narrow at this point is held in higher esteem, even though I personally prefer the first record. And I feel like the reaction to your column bears that out a little bit. You know, it, it seems like there was, like, a lot of enthusiasm for, for remembering this record is that your impression as well? I mean, I, I I feel like Shoots Too Narrow like has the the belt, so to speak, right now in terms of Shin's albums. It's so it's so hard to tell, and I don't think I have any more clarity after having uh, written this piece. Which it's so interesting because there are albums that have so much more personal meaning to me, and when I do these retrospectives, and they don't hit, but this one seemed to hit in ways that I wasn't anticipating. Like one of the guys in the band or the band that made uh, this particular record said it was the best thing ever written about the Shins, which shout Dave Hernandez. But um, yeah, and you also mentioned that I kind of had to put this together really quickly. So um, I think what I found out about this record, you mentioned uh, is it seen as like maybe a lesser second record. The comparison that I came up with, and I think this makes more sense having listened to them both this past week, is that this is kind of their room on fire compared to Oh Inverted Worlds? Um, is this it in the sense that like they both came out in 2001, 2003? Second album is darker in a way, more lyrically. But I, what I found, 
I never paid attention to the lyrics of the... I think James Mercer puts a lot of care and cares a lot about his lyrics, but I... I, I I ha- I struggled with this piece because I love this record, Shoots Too Narrow, and I've like never really thought that deeply about it. So I'm in the middle of writing. I'm like, fuck, what am I supposed to do? So anytime I'm like up against a word count problem, I just go to the lyrics. Hey, maybe this can pad it out. And it actually just completely changed my perspective on this record because it's like super dark and mean and in a way that really... Uh, jived with a lot of the music i liked at that time like death cab super mean songs there cursive obviously some very mean songs meadowlands mean stuff it was it was a part of a greater shift of indie music towards that oc scrubs garden state kind of low-key mean nerd music that's obviously been scrutinized and deconstructed a lot in modern day but I had, I still, I, I think that with this, like, no one's going to choose just one. I think both of these records provide such a different experience. O Inverted World, to me, is more vibey. Uh, it reminds me of, like, the summer of 2001, whereas I can put on Shoot Too Narrow anytime, and it, the songs are just better. But I think the interesting question is, where do we stand on Wincing the Night Away? That's, like, their big, slick, Joe Ciccarelli-produced album, uh, and one where they were kind of famous at that point, because Garden State came out after Shoots Too Narrow. I forgot that. I thought it came out in, like, 2003. So I think this... I, I feel as if, like, Wincing the Night Away is more of, like, an indie cast type of record. Well, I, I have to go back to something you said, because you said very offhandedly that, well, Shoots Too Narrow, the songs are just better. I actually disagree with that. Because, again, I think Shoots Too Narrow now has the rep as being the better record. I, I don't know if the Is This It, Room on Fire analogy works. Because I think in that uh, instance, people still think of Is This It as being the classic. And Room on Fire has gained in esteem over the years. But certainly at the time, people thought, well, this is just reiterating the first record. Like the the analogy I would make, and maybe it's just because of like similar album covers, but I think O Inverted World is the first Weezer record, and I think Shoots Too Narrow is the second Weezer record. I think it's more like Pinkerton and in the sense of it being, as you said, darker, meaner. I think it's more musically sophisticated. Like there's more going on with the production on Shoots Too Narrow than O Inverted World, which like the first record is like just straight up guitar pop, not a lot going on in terms of other instrumentation. Shoots too narrow, it really expands sonically, and I think that might be part of like what people respond to. There's like a little bit more meat on the bone with that record, maybe, than there is with the first record. But the first record has new slang, it has carrying is creepy. Like there's a reason why Zach Braff went to that album. Yes. <laughs> when he was trying to show how great the shins are. I think if you are just going for like standout classic songs O Inverted World has more to me than Shoots Too Narrow like the the strength of Shoots Too Narrow if you're going to make that case is that it's more consistent throughout like I think people might listen to O Inverted World and go yeah there's there's great high points but maybe there's some filler tracks I don't agree with that I think the record is great from top to bottom you are right in that at least for me O Inverted World is such a moment in time like I remember when that record came out I drove four hours to see them play live like that original band that all got sacked like I saw (laughs) that band play in a bar who were they playing with at that time 
Um, I don't remember who they who opened. I think I saw them I, play with Modest Mouse in two thousand one. See, I saw they were the headliners when I saw them. Got they were it. playing at uh, the four hundred bar in Minneapolis, which is like a you know three hundred person capacity room. Uh, so they were the headliners uh, at that moment in time. But um, yeah, you know, going back to Wincing uh, the Night Away, that is an interesting thing here because I think when you look at the Shins, those first two albums. Everyone agrees that those are great guitar pop records, and I think they really stand up. Wincing the Night Away, I guess if we're going to go back to the Strokes, like that's their first impressions of the earth type thing. And I could totally see someone saying, Wincing the Night Away is my favorite Shins record because it's the first one that they heard. Yeah. You know, it it had a bigger push behind it, it had a bigger budget. I think that they were on a major label for that record. With uh, shoot, After, with wincing the night away, yeah, nah, like they the were still they were still on sub pop at that time. Oh, okay, okay, so, but I feel like I I remember that record being bigger for whatever reason. Maybe I'm misremembering that, uh, but I could see someone who's maybe a little younger than us being like wincing the night away is is my favorite because I heard that one first. Like I could see that, but I think that's the only argument you could make in favor of that. I think the first two pretty much stand apart from the rest of what the shins have done yeah i think you it's easy to misremember wincing the night away as a major label album because it's produced by a guy who did uh evil urges um and what else did joe ciccarelli do he did like that broken social scene album that came out a few years back just a really slick guy who worked on john mayer and frank zappa albums right i i think he did icky thump yes that's that too yeah very 2007 type of guy uh just the slicker not as loved <laughs> album and when i was doing my research on this um i found a spin article from 2007 which really just overstated the hype it's like this is sub pop's biggest gamble and it's because they shipped like 200,000 copies of wincing the night away which uh compare doing big numbers on spotify particularly compared to um you know, shoots too narrow. Even like Port of Morrow, which an album like completely memory hold, uh, that is a big hit as well. So, uh, I, yeah, I think Wincing the Night Away is a good album. I think it tends to be both over and underrated. But um, yeah, it's just that fascinating. Uh, we you can't discuss that album without discussing um, you know Modest Mouse's album from two thousand seven. We were dead before the ship even sank, and. I just want to point out that I was incorrect on who I saw the shins with if I did see them at the Black Hat in D.C. Preston School of Industry was actually the headlining band back then. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was O Inverted World? That era? was 2001, if, 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 if I'm okay. correct, unless I maybe saw them at the 930 Club. I don't know. So that's pretty early on for the shins. I could see yeah, that was after O Inverted World came out, though. That was like November 2011. But that album took a while. That wasn't like a huge hit. And I feel like Shoots Too Narrow, like coming after that, really built up the first record. You know, those two albums, I think, kind of fed each other at the time. True. So I, I feel like it took them a little while to become uh, to become big. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment here. Thanks to everyone who uh, writes in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, Ian, you want to read... Uh, I guess we have time for two letters here. Yeah. Do you want to read our first letter? Yeah, we are transitioning. We're, we aren't doing a lot of sports cast today, but we are doing movie cast. So this comes to us from Chris from Long Island. Shout to Strong Island. 
Love the podcast and always enjoy a nice tangent into sportscast or TV cast to mix it up a little. So how about a little movie cast? Uh, would love to get your thoughts on all the musicians that pop up in Martin Scorsese's latest masterpiece. Jason Isbell, Sturgill Simpson, IndyCast Hall of Famer Pete Yorn. He poses these as questions. I'm assuming that they actually do indeed show up because I didn't notice when I watched the movie. Yeah, so, okay, so we're talking about uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, which uh, came out last week. And uh, you didn't notice Jason Isbell or Sturgill Simpson? I, I didn't. Um, I mean, I, I knew, I, I didn't know beforehand that they were in the in the movie, which I, I, I like this leading to the possibility that, like, Martin Scorsese is, like, watch Righteous Gemstones and thinks, like, yeah, I got to get Sturgill Simpson in there. Um, well, because because like Jason Isbell has like a pretty big part. He plays Bill Smith, who's like the husband that's investigating Leonardo DiCaprio. Man, I, I'm just so bad. I I've, maybe I'm just like, like in the mindset. Were you of, like, awake during this movie? Like, were you paying? <laughs> like, were you just like on your phone the entire time? No, but I, I was in the special old person theater at the Landmark in San Diego with like the reclining chairs. You can only buy a senior ticket. There's like senior and child. There is an adult. So. Yeah, I think I may have, like, mind-melded with... I was, like, probably the youngest person in that room by 10 years, at least. So, like, because Isbell has, like, a big part of the movie. It was bigger than I was Maybe I've just forgotten what he looks like. Yeah, man, I don't know, man. Like, he's pretty noticeable in the movie. Uh, Sturgill Simpson has a smaller part, but he's very Sturgill Simpson. Like, he plays this uh, rodeo guy that... uh, (laughs) That, that DiCaprio and De Niro like hire to like basically help them kill people in the movie. And then Pete Yorn shows up. I was not expecting Pete Yorn. I actually <laughs> waited until the credits to confirm that it was Pete Yorn. Because Yorn plays a killer in the movie. And uh, he, he has like a really unusual voice. So oh, that guy's Pete Yorn? Fuck. Well, I don't know what guy you're picturing because I don't know I don't know who you're picturing at all in this movie. <laughs> so, so you say that guy, you could be picturing like AC Kirby, no, like the guy, the AC Kirby. I remember that character. I'm like, I yeah, yeah, I'm like yeah, that's of Yorn. course that's Pete Yorn. Fuck. And then you have Jack White at the end of the movie. That I noticed. And then uh, this is not of the same generation, but there's Charlie Muscle White. He's also a singer songwriter. He's got a part in the movie. So there's like a bunch of singer songwriters in the movie. Uh, again, Isbell, I thought was really good. And if you ever rewatch this movie, Ian, <laughs> pay attention for Jason Isbell. Like he, he has like a pretty major part in the film. Um, did you like the movie? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought the movie was great. It was a real experience. It was very disorienting to see it at like noon and then leave the theater and it's like four o'clock. But uh, as far as the cameos go, like I, I, I like those. I kind of wish it was a little more stunt casty, like when uh, Action Bronson pops up as a coffin uh, salesman in uh, The Irishman. Um, but he, I, I, what I like about like all these people who are in the movie, it gives me – there's like a non-zero chance that Martin Scorsese would like IndyCast because you did your big Martin Scorsese filmography ranking. You did something on the Rolling Stones next. Um I do you think that there's a chance? Uh, there's no chance, but like I think <laughs> if one of his if, if his daughter that he's always on uh, TikTok, right? With, if she if she were a fan and were playing it in the house, I think Marty would be into it. It would be great, uh, Marty. You are part of the post forty five year old indie rock fan community that we uh, cater to on this show, so it would be great. 
if you could check us out. Um, I just want to say I love the movie as well. Um, I love the score yeah. of the film that Robbie Robertson did. Um, I was listening to the score a lot this weekend. I actually feel like this is like potentially one of my favorite albums of the year. It's like a really great score. It's It, it reminds me of, not in terms of the music, but like the the uh, score that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did for The Social Network, which is the last score I remember really standing out as like an album onto itself. Like you can just listen to that as an album and it works so well. And another example of that would be like Johnny Greenwood's score for There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Like those, you know, like where you have again, like rock people doing film scores that uh, you don't need to watch the movie to enjoy the music. It's so good. I would put this Robbie Robertson score in there for uh, Killers of the Flower Mood. Really good album. Uh, Robbie, of course, was not in the film. He's a singer-songwriter. Uh, and sadly, of course, he passed away recently. I could see him winning an Oscar for this score. Yes. I would not be shocked. It seems like he's going to be an early frontrunner for that. I would love to have I would love to have seen... The one, one thing that would make the soundtrack better is if you know they put in some of the songs from the participating actors like robert de niro pulls up in his car with the awuga horn bumping life on a chain <laughs> right <laughs> that would have been good that would have been good yeah yorn i noticed that his brother is a producer on the film uh, so pete i wonder yorn's if that's an la pete guy yorn he, pete yorn's like yeah. uh he's like an industry dude well he's from jersey i think originally what yeah. Oh, yeah. That's his thing. That's that. That was a big part of his thing. Like early, early on, Alan Sepinwall, the great TV critic, I think went to high school with Pete Yorn. Huh. So out there in Jersey. I just, so I just always remember him being this like, just this like he did the score for me, myself, and Irene. So that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. He. Be, well, he, I think I don't. I don't know if he did the score. I think they just liked his songs and used a bunch of his songs in the movie. His eldest oh, brother, yeah, his eldest brother Kevin Yorn is an entertainment lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> so, so he's he's an industry guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's I mean he's been in L.A. I think for a long yeah. time, but I, he's originally from Jersey. Um, let's read the second letter here. I'll read this one. This comes from Marissa in New York. Hey, Stephen Ian, as a twenty-something, I wanted to provide some intel on the cross-generational appeal of the Beirut sphere. Now we talked about Beirut. I guess that was the episode before the last episode, earlier this month. And this is in response to that. Apparently there's a Beirut sphere, mm. which I'm very curious to learn more about. Uh, Marissa writes, when I was a teenager in the mid-2010s, I was part of a thriving indie rock Tumblr. Wow. This included a significant faction of teens with blogs dedicated to the Decemberists, Beirut, and Neutral Milk Hotel. What? Teens... <laughs> Tumbling about the Decemberists? I'm shocked. Uh, we're now seeing a return-style romanization of the specific blog era by younger Zoomers that missed out on it, so I'm afraid the Beirut shuffle-sweeping TikTok is likelier than you might think, though I personally think Noah and the Whale would be funnier. <laughs> you, are, you are right, Marissa. Uh, P.S. First time writing in, have been a devoted listener for years. Over the summer, I was living in a research station in the Madagascar rainforest, and on my day off... I once walked to the nearest village with an internet cafe so I could hear you guys talk about news and hash out trends that I missed. Appreciate you all. Wow. That is some major dedication, Marissa. Thank you so much. Listening to us in the rainforest. Yeah. Hash out trends. Amazing. Um, I learned so much from this email. I had no idea that there were teens in the 2010s going on Tumblr and posting about 
castaways and cutouts and, <laughs> you know uh, the, the crane wife part three uh but according to marissa this, this was apparently a thing back then were you aware of this not at all when you when people especially like of marissa's age mention tumblr um and thriving teen communities i think it's either about Joyce Manor or like the neighborhood. Uh, and those were the only bands to exist on Tumblr. But I do think that makes sense in retrospect because Tumblr, it's been kind of considered like an old soul sort of social media. It was kind of straight up blogging and aesthetic curation, which you know, makes sense if you're going to be into the Decemberists and Beirut who have that kind of old soul component, kind of Etsy-based. It's a lot of, you know, hand-stitched stuff. And so I can see the appeal, especially in 2013, because of the bands I had mentioned, like, that was big time for, like, Churches, Heim, the 1975. Real turning point for indie culture, quote-unquote. And so the, the way to, like, really pivot is to be into, you know, shit like that. And I think that when you look at it now the way the most punk or contrarian thing you can do in a time of like Taylor Swift to Gemini or rage rap or whatever is be someone who's like super into that dork ass literary music. And I say that, you know, with warmth because I like some December songs. I like some Beirut songs. Um, yeah. I, I also think it's reflective of the fact that, um, you know, we live in a time where everything is just so atomized that there's no real like monoculture aside from Taylor Swift. Like you can get, you know, a, a, a couple of people who have friends in the industry or the writing industry, like into Decemberist and Beirut and see that as a trend that kind of happened with indie sleaze this year, where it's just like a couple people rising to the surface. And so you can make something like this happen with a minimum amount of people. So, you know, we're going to see that. And then I don't know, Knowing the whale, let's remember some guys. Fuck yeah. Can you name a single Noah and the Whale song? I cannot name a single Noah and the Whale song. <laughs> Sorry. You would have blown my mind if you could have done that. Yeah, that I got have... Spotify up right now, but I'm just going to read some of the Two Atoms in a Molecule, Life Goes On, it appears to be an acronym. Oh, this, you got you to gotta see the cover of their 2008 album, Peaceful, comma, The World Lays Me Down. That is 2008 aesthetics. In that is, you could just put that in a time capsule if you really want to remember what 2008 was like. You know, you throw that on, you play some Flight of the Concords. You're 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 living some good times. now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So I mentioned this a bit last week. I kind of previewed by saying I want to give this more time to talk about because I didn't want to like bunch it in with the Jane Remover album. But if you kept up with the uh, emo narrative of 2023, you know that Awake But Still In Bed's new album, Chaos Takes The Wheel and I Am A Passenger. By the way, that title is about like one-fifth as long as their previous one. Uh, that has really come forth as a strong contender, if not pole position, for best emo album of 2023. Obviously, it's been very highly anticipated. It's been five years, five years and almost six since their last album, which came out in 2018. It's also signals a return of Tiny Engines. You know, they put out an album a few weeks ago from Bewilder that I mentioned here, but this is kind of one of the big ones. And 
This is one of my favorite type of albums, uh, which is the bigger, bolder, sprawling second album. The first two songs are six and eight minutes long. Uh, it's about an hour. Um, and it kind of makes me think of their version of goodness or harmlessness. If we want to think about you know, some of the bigger emo sophomore albums of the mid 2010s. And I think that if you like any form of emo, particularly like late nineties or revival style, like this is going to do everything you want. And then some, it lives up to the hype. Um, when I do the eventual top 10 emo albums list that I do every year for up rocks, I can't envision anything else being number one, although home is where comes close. Saw those two bands on tour. Those two bands are really killing it this year. They are bands operating with vision, with scope. And I get bummed out about this scene quite a bit because it doesn't feel like there's get um, as much like talk about it in mainstream spheres. It seems to have retreated upon itself, but uh, can't recommend this one highly enough. Awake, but still in bed. Chaos is a passenger. Chaos takes the wheel and I am a passenger. All right, so I'm going to shoehorn two records into my recommendation corner this week. One is an old record, one is a new record. The old record is called These Are Not Fall Colors. It's the one and only studio band by a legendary Pacific Northwest indie band called Link. Uh, This album was reissued this month. Uh, I looked on Bandcamp uh, this morning, and the vinyl editions of this record are already sold out. I wonder if they're going to do like another pressing. seems like there was a lot of demand since the record only just dropped last week uh but this album originally came out in 1994 and when you listen to it you can really hear the seeds of like so many bands that came out of this region after link in particular modest mouse uh who have talked about link in the past as being a touchstone band for them uh isaac brock you know listening to this group when he was a teenager and i think taking a lot of the elements that are in this group and and putting it into his own songs um, this album is produced by Phil Eck and Calvin Johnson, of course, who both went on to work with Modest Mouse, and uh, it totally holds up. I mean, it's described as like a post-hardcore record. In a weird way, it sounds like an emo record now, yep. uh, in <laughs> retrospect, but I think at the time, this was like quintessential indie rock. Very short songs, sloppy guitars, like raging vocals, uh, things, you know, songs that just sort of barge in make a statement and then barge out tons of energy but also a lot of melody and a lot of great riffs just a great record it really holds up and again if you're looking for something that really set the tone for music in this scene in the 90s this is such a pivotal record it's good to see it get uh, another spotlight uh the other album i want to talk about this is actually an ep by a band called lightheaded it's called good good great and this band they're signed to slumberland records and Essentially, when you say a band is signed to Slumberland Records, you have a good idea of what they're going to sound like. Jangly guitars, uh, you know, sort of fey vocals, uh, lots of really great melodies. That is what you get from this band. The thing that they bring into it that I really like is a 60s pop influence. Uh, Particularly bands like The Left Bank, Millennium, uh, The Association. These groups that have sort of like a Baroque quality to what they do. That's also infused into this band, and it just results in music that just feels light as a feather, very beautiful, really good songs, Uh, and I've just been really enjoying the EP. It's a perfect length. I think it's about five songs, Um, and yeah, the band is well-named, Lightheaded. You will feel lightheaded in a very good way. 
when you listen to this record. Again, it's called Good, Good, Great. Uh, it came out, I think, earlier this month. Really worth catching up with. Really good record. Yeah. Um, with, with Link, I, 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 if we want to sell it even further, I remember back in 2009, some of the Pacific Northwest indie old heads heard Japan Droids post nothing, and they would call that, yo, this is just like a Link ripoff. And, you know, I think that... I think they meant that in kind of a warm way, but you know, I, I I've been told a lot. It's like, yeah, Link, man. Like, and I think Japan Droids are a big fan of that record. You know, they're Vancouver, so if you need even more of a push to go check out this classic one done type band, that'll that should do it, right? And just to clarify for people doing the Google search for this, it's L Y N C. That's how it's spelled, not like a link to a website. This is the old school link before there were such things as websites. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. You can hit us up next week where we will do more news and reviews and hashing out trends. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 